Do you feel like a complete and utter Muppet? I'm sitting around reading law books on the weekend going, oh god, this is interesting. <laughs> they've, they've amended section 127. This was supposed to send you off on a good note, not a <laughs> thinking about climate change. You're listening to The Briefcase. Hello and welcome to episode 34. It is Thursday, 6 July 2023. I'm Sarah and I am your host. And not to be a Debbie Downer, but I've been feeling a little bit funky this week. And not in the good type of way that results in my super awesome rap dancing that everyone loves, but the bad type of way that results in bursting into tears at the dentist when the receptionist tries to book in your next appointment. I mean, I know the dentist isn't everyone's favourite place to visit, but this was an absurd display, even for a hypochondriac such as myself. So this was my first visit to this particular dentist, and obviously I won't be going back because, well, I looked insane. But as I pulled myself together in the car afterwards, I tried to pinpoint exactly what it was about the overall experience that led me to feel this kind of way. And in between sobs to my husband on the telephone, I was able to identify that it was probably losing my ability to make informed decisions. In layman's terms, the dentist used lots of big words. And because of all those big words, I wasn't sure whether I should or even could say no to anything I was being offered. This must be how so many people feel when they talk to a lawyer or interact with our justice system. So if a sophisticated individual such as myself can feel that way in a simple dental checkup, then spare a thought for the many people who feel that way on the daily when they listen to our equally big words and hop on our equally rigid legal conveyor belts. And that's this week's PSA. Anyway, as I book into my regular dentist, what's in the briefcase this week? Woo! Got my good funky back because I'm bringing you an ASMR event. That is an interview with Ryan Levoyer, expert on the laws of armed conflict, who is utilizing the dulcet tones of his Estonian accent to explain how the laws of warfare work and whether they're keeping up with AI. Season three of The Briefcase is brought to you by our friends at the University of Queensland Law School. Check the show notes for a master's custom built for you. There's even a convenient link in there for you to click. No, don't Google UQ in a separate window. Just, just can you click on the link in the... Oh, see, this is why we can't have nice things. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Good. Thank you for coming here and joining me in this conversation. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. So, if you had to explain in an elevator pitch, how would you describe humanitarian law and the law of armed conflict? So, they refer to the same body of of rules and principles of uh, international law that seeks to limit violence in an armed conflict. Um, and to protect persons and objects that are particularly vulnerable. Mm. So that is essentially the objective. How far can the laws go to really protect human lives as well as our culture? An American scholar, Lewis Henkin, once famously said that most states respect most of their international law obligations most of the time. And that is probably true for most areas of international law. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure it's always true for the law of armed conflict. Mm. I mean, it is a, an area of law where we often see 
uh, sort of breaches of the law being mentioned in the media, for mm. instance. Mm. Uh, and it's sometimes very difficult to, to enforce compliance with the law. But I think it's the breaches of the law that get reported, not compliance with the law. Mm. Um, and the result of this, of course, is that because the breaches tend to be rather horrendous, they get a lot of interest in the media. So if we think about the conflict currently ongoing in Ukraine, for instance, um, there are some aspects of the law of armed conflict that actually have worked. So for example, uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross, the world's preeminent humanitarian organization, has a very important role to play in ensuring that prisoners of war and other detainees are treated in accordance with the law. So they undertake visits to facilities where detainees are being held, they interview them, they compile reports about their well-being and and they submit them to the relevant military authorities. Prisoner of war exchanges have taken place by and large as envisaged by the law of armed conflict. But obviously there have been breaches of the law on an almost daily basis. Perhaps the the most recent incident that caught some media attention was the destruction of a dam in Ukraine, which then caused significant civilian damage downstream. But destroying a dam, a facility that contains dangerous forces in such a way that it causes harm to the civilian population is certainly something that the law of armed conflict seeks to avoid. Right. In an ideal world. Yes. So what happens when you breach these rules then? So a number of things can happen. Ultimately, when a conflict is over, the state that breached rules could make compensation to the other party. What is perhaps a more practical enforcement mechanism is is criminal sanctions. Uh, And we are seeing those widely discussed in the context of the Ukraine conflict. And indeed, the International Criminal Court is actively investigating genocide, crimes against humanity or war crimes that may have been committed in the territory of Ukraine and indeed has uh, issued uh, arrest warrants in relation to two very senior Russian officials, one of whom is, is President Putin. So what is a war crime? So war crime is a serious violation of the law of armed conflict to which international law has attached individual criminal responsibility. Okay. So there's two significant parts. War crimes are particularly serious breaches of the law. The law covers some very minute issues, if you will, dealing with the price of tobacco in prisoner of war camps, one of my favorites. Um, And breaches of those do not normally trigger individual criminal responsibility. But when we're dealing with serious violations of the law, targeting or mistreating civilians, torturing prisoners of war, denying the wounded medical care, etc., that can then attract criminal penalties. The most up-to-date list of those would be in the Rome Statute of International Criminal Court, which sort of provides a catalogue of war crimes that are capable of being committed in an international and in a non-international armed conflict. Mm. The two that have been spoken about in, in, in Australia recently are the war crime of murder mm. and the war crime of cruel treatment. And the war crime of murder essentially is the intentional killing of a person who enjoys some type of a protected status under the law of armed conflict, and that killing is linked to a particular armed conflict, which elevates it from an ordinary murder, if you will, to a war crime of murder. Right. And when you say somebody who enjoys a protected status, who's protected? So we're talking about civilians and other persons who do not or no longer take part in hostilities. And so the second 
group can, for example, include wounded and sick combatants, right. uh, prisoners of war, anyone who has been removed from the fighting. Okay. And if somebody throws their hands up and says, I, I yield, and if you kill them, is that a war crime of, of murder? It can be. It depends a little bit on the circumstances because there are certain circumstances in which it's implausible that a surrender can be accepted. So if you think about a bomber pilot at 5,000 feet, yes. um, they will not know what happens on the ground. So as much as you may like to surrender there on the ground, it, it might not be an effective surrender that can be accepted. So it, it simply might not be sufficiently communicated to the adversary. But um, if ground troops you know, encounter someone who throws their weapon on the ground and throws their hands up and says, I wish to surrender, um, then that person becomes protected under the law of armed conflict. Yeah, right. So what was the second one that you mentioned? Uh, cruel treatment. Cruel treatment. And I'm guessing you're referencing the Robert Smith case. Correct, correct. When you talk about it being in the media quite a lot recently. So what's cruel treatment? Various forms of assault on a detained person, for instance, might qualify as cruel treatment. Okay. And what happened in Robert Smith's case, do you know? There are various bits of the matter that we know um, through the public records. Certainly some of the allegations that were made against him involved him killing people, but also kicking detainees, mm. uh, for instance. And these in the recent federal court matter have been found to be true. Those allegations have been found to be true on the balance of probabilities. Mm. But yeah, it needs to be emphasized that he has not been convicted of a criminal offense. Mm. So what happens now then with him, for example? Are other powers that be looking at him to ping him for war crimes? I don't know for sure, but I would think so. Right. So what has been happening in the background is uh, an inquiry undertaken by the Office of the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force. It's known as the Afghanistan Inquiry, or it's better known by its final product, the Burton Report, after Justice Burton, who conducted the inquiry. This was a four-year process that identified several dozen incidents involving special forces, Australian special forces in Afghanistan, that if proven in court could amount to war crimes of, of murder and cruel treatment. So that inquiry has concluded. The recommendation was to refer a number of current and former ADF members to criminal prosecution. To that end, the government established the Office of the Special Investigator as a separate executive agency to conduct the investigation and then to provide the, the briefs of evidence to the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions. And the first indictment as a result of the work of the, of the Burton Inquiry and the, the work of the Office of the Special Investigator has already happened. So one person has been charged with war crimes earlier this year, and we don't know how many other matters there will be. I hate to make predictions. Uh, oh, come predictions on. are difficult, particularly about the future, right? I'm sure. <laughs> um, yes. But I, I think the finding in federal court that on the balance of probabilities, Mr. Ben Robert Smith engaged in conduct that, if proven in criminal court, would amount to war crimes, will sort of twist the arm of the special investigator and the Commonwealth DPP somewhat. I think it's very difficult after this pretty brutal, shall we say, finding by the federal court to say, ah, oh, we will actually choose not to charge Mr. Robert Smith. Mm. I think 
th that judgment, if it stands, probably also seals his indictment. I've been wondering what happens, particularly when you're that in the spotlight. It begs the question why you would do that. Yeah, I mean, we can speculate about that. I mean, it may be that his legal team didn't think that the evidence against him was was that strong. Mm -hmm. um, or there, there may be an attempt to sort of muddy the waters in terms of a possible future jury trial because all the potential jurors will have now heard that there was a finding in the federal court. And the question is, what is the, the likelihood of a, of a fair trial? Mm. Um, I don't know whether that was a, a, a motive in launching these proceedings. So yeah, we, we can hypothesize, but yeah, I have no, no knowledge of, mm. of, of what the thinking was there. Uh, civil litigation strategy is beyond my expertise, so <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't offer any definitive opinion. I am recording, by the way. Yes, I, I did notice. <laughs> but, you know, feel free to be candid. I don't think I've said anything particularly defamatory. Okay, good. So what happens in a similar case, like with Ben Robert Smith, mm -hmm. because it's a crime that happened in Afghanistan, Yes. how does the International Crime Court mm -hmm. factor into what will, might or will happen here in Australia? How do they interplay? Well, the International Criminal Court is designed to be complementary to national uh, criminal justice systems. Okay. So it is the ultimate backup plan when it comes to genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes. Right. So the idea is that in the first instance, individual states, including Australia, should investigate and prosecute alleged war crimes. And if states are unable or unwilling genuinely to conduct investigations and prosecutions, only then would the matter become admissible in the International Criminal Court. Right. And at the moment, there is every indication that Australia is sparing no resource or cost in terms of uh, the investigations and, and potentially prosecutions. So I think that will put the International Criminal Court out of action for a little longer. And if the investigation has been genuine, then the International Criminal Court will, res will respect the national outcomes. Uh, so unless there's some attempt through those pr proceedings to cover something up, they, they will not second guess what the national authorities have done. But there's just been a recent interesting development. Uh, Senator Jackie Lambie announced her intention to refer to the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court the fact that the Brereton report seemed to exonerate senior commanders in the ADF and basically leave, to leave them outside the scope of the ongoing investigation and possible prosecution. I think that's an interesting idea, but uh, it, we need to keep in mind that the Office of the Special Investigator, who is currently in charge of the investigation, is not bound by the results of the Burton report or the, or the recommendations of the Burton report. So even though Justice Burton's finding was that there was no evidence of knowledge or involvement of senior levels of command, it is entirely open for the Office of the Special Investigator to reopen that question and to e examine the responsibility of senior commanders. So I think that what, what Senator Lambie is doing is, is interesting, but I think she may be jumping the gun just a little bit, although that's probably a, a bad metaphor in this context. <laughs> I'm all for a good pun, so I'll allow it. So why do you think she's done that then? I think that she and 
her sort of legal advisor in this matter do have a point in that the Afghanistan inquiry and the Burton report do tend to skip over the legal responsibility of uh, senior commanders, perhaps a little bit too cavalierly. So I think there is a question around whether the the possible legal accountability of commanders has been properly addressed. So I suspect that that partly is driving what she's doing, but, but I'm not entirely convinced that this is now the right moment to do that. When would you do it? Once we have a better sense of in what direction the prosecutions are going or the indictments that, that are being made are going. So we've had one indictment as a result of the investigation of the OSI. I think we should probably try to see a few more of them before we have a sense of what the direction is there. Right. Okay. Are there any landmark decisions that sort of underpin this area of law? Well, there are quite a few. So there are important judgments from the various international criminal tribunals that have dealt with uh, war crimes, going back to the Nuremberg Tribunal, for example, and questions around whether or under what circumstances superior orders can amount to a defence, for instance. What's superior orders? It's the supposed defence of saying, well, Yes, I committed an offence, but I did that only because my superior officer told me to do that. Right. Um, And as a general matter, international criminal law has taken the view that this is not a valid defence in the context of genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes, with some very, very limited exceptions when it comes to war crimes in circumstances where the law is, is very unclear. And as a result, the unlawfulness of the order is not Manifest, But as a general proposition, that's not a valid defence. In other areas, more broadly in the law of armed conflict, there have been some very significant findings by the International Court of Justice. So so not a criminal court, but a body that settles disputes between states, a bit like domestic civil matters, but not quite. But the International Criminal Court of Justice also has an important advisory function. So various UN bodies can turn to it for authoritative legal advice. And on a number of occasions, the International Court of Justice has issued advisory opinions on very significant matters of the law of armed conflict. There was an advisory opinion relating to nuclear weapons or the lawfulness of their use of nuclear weapons. And even though the court didn't reach a definitive conclusion, the way in which it articulated the rules that are relevant for assessing the legality of weapons was very significant. And then more recently, there was an advisory opinion from the uh, International Court of Justice relating to the security barrier or wall that Israeli authorities built in the occupied Palestinian territories. And that, for instance, was a significant finding because it clarified the relationship between law of armed conflict and human rights law. So two bodies of international law that interact, but whose interaction is often somewhat unclear. Mm -hmm. Ah, This is an interesting question. How does technology interplay with armed conflict and humanitarian Ah. law? Is the law keeping up? Yes, it's the perennial question. Is the law keeping up? Look, there are multiple answers to this. So so first of all, uh, I would say that technology plays a very significant role in determining what armed conflict looks like on the ground. I wouldn't go as far as saying that it sort of it determines the character of warfare, and some scholars tend to do that, but uh, I think it's probably a bit more complex than that. But certainly technology is, is one of the, or if not the most significant factor that it determines the character of warfare. In what way? 
I mean, if you just look at the, the news stories coming out of armed conflicts today and, and of what is happening there, we are reading and seeing stories of Ukrainian f- fighters attaching grenades to drones that they basically order off Amazon and they develop these sort of improvised flying explosive devices. I mean, that is very different from the warfare where, you know, lines of of colorfully dressed soldiers sort of faced each other and then sort of patiently, you know, loaded their muskets and then sort of collectively opened fire. Like, so we've come a long way from there. So the technology plays a significant role, not just the weapons technology, I should be clear. If you think about the role of aviation in changing the nature of warfare, so the, 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 the widespread nature of air warfare these days. Or if we go even back in history, the introduction of railroads um, changed warfare and military operations quite fundamentally because they allowed for the relatively fast deployment of very large numbers of troops, Mm. which was not really possible Mm. in land warfare before that. So these kinds of technological changes have always pushed warfare in in some direction. They, They obviously interact with other factors, sort of social structures and economic factors, but technology does play a significant role. So I think it's, it, it is important to ask, is the, is the law coping with those technological developments? And it is a complex question, complex enough, interestingly, that here at UQ in our postgraduate programs, we teach the law of armed conflict as a, as a discrete course. But we also now teach a separate course which looks at warfare, technology and law. Uh, because the issues around cyber warfare or uh, remotely controlled warfare or the introduction of autonomous weapon systems, they just create such complex and also very interesting problems that we need a sort of a separate vehicle. So does the law keep up? Well, on a certain level it does. I mean, you know, as, as all lawyers do when they are faced with a problem to which no specific legal rule seems to specifically apply, we go back to first principles. The law of armed conflict also contains a set of first principles. There are other instances where there are perhaps sort of question marks. So one of the ongoing debates internationally is whether there should be a new treaty that prohibits or regulates weapons that can operate on an autonomous basis, so without direct supervision by a human. And there's an intense debate at the moment around whether the existing body of law of armed conflict is capable of managing that or whether we need sort of specialized rules. What's cyber warfare? Cyber warfare is the use of computers and computer networks to a a military or hostile end. The most notorious example uh, remains the Stuxnet incident, which didn't really take place in the context of an ongoing armed conflict, but it kind of gives you a sense of of how it might play out. And this was an operation to plant malware in an Iranian nuclear enrichment facility. And that malware caused the nuclear centrifuges, which are used to purify nuclear fuel, to spin out of control and effectively self-destruct. So a computer network attack effectively resulted in physical damage. And can think of other contexts in which a similar thing can happen in in an armed conflict. Um, And so, so that form of engagement in an armed conflict would be called cyber warfare or or, or hostile cyber operations. Right. What was the name of that incident again? Stuxnet. Try saying that five times fast. 
Stuxnet, 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 Stuxnet. I've said it so many times now. <laughs> I thought I, got, I had you there. Damn, damn. So you just mentioned as well that every time there's a technological advance, it pushes warfare in a particular direction. What direction do you think AI is going to push warfare? Huh, that's a very good question. And again, it requires this sort of crystal ball. So the optimistic view is that the use of AI will add more precision to military operations. And it will allow us to, in some circumstances, bring service members out of harm's way. So, for example, we can have a targeting system on an advanced weapons platform, which has AI in it, which assists the targeteer in making decisions. It could be AI functions that alert the operator to the presence of protected persons or, or protected facilities, such as cultural property or you know, hospitals displaying the Red Cross or, or, or what have you. So in these kinds of decision support capabilities, uh, AI can perhaps, perhaps play a role in making warfare more precise. And then there are these sort of contexts in which humans actually are not very good. So it's this dangerous, dull and dirty situations, and particularly where a human being would have to pay continuous attention, which we are not very good at doing. Mm. And so you can have computerized systems that could make warfare more precise and reduce the harm to civilians. The other narrative is that uh, AI will cause humans to lose control over the use of force in armed conflict and the really sort of dystopian version of this is that Skynet Skynet or (laughs) Terminator will come and kill us all. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle in the sense that there are very sensible uses for AI in armed conflict, which we should absolutely look at. And then there are some problematic uses or there are problems with AI which make it uh, problematic in particular circumstances. So the question is, how do we navigate that that middle ground and whether ethical guidelines for weapons developers and armed forces would help, whether we need new legal regulation, whether we can solve this by interpreting and trying to creatively apply existing rules of the law. I mean, the jury is very much out on that. Mm. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about this body of law, what would it be? Oh, there's so many little things that I'd like to tinker with. <laughs> um, I'll, give you, I'll give you three. Give me three, okay. Okay, so I think the big one is that I would, as far as possible, abolish the distinction between international and non-international armed conflicts. So historically, the law that applies in these contexts has developed in slightly different ways. States have been very concerned about allowing international law to regulate civil wars effectively. Mm. Mm. And this has led to different standards in different conflicts. And and every time we deal with a non-international armed conflict, we need to engage in a debate about whether this or that rule that we know exists in an international armed conflict also applies in non-international armed conflict. So the more we could make that uniform, the better. But I think that would probably be sort of the one major change that I would want to make about the law itself. The real practical effects would arise from making sure the law is better implemented and complied with. Mm. So no matter how much we tinker with, with the specific rules to adapt them to existing circumstances, if they're not being respected by armed forces, then, you know, what's the point? Mm. So if I could somehow wave someone to make 
the armed forces around the world more compliant with the existing rules, the world would be a much, much better place. It's difficult because people like Putin would also then engage in what is sometimes referred to as lawfare, which is sort of the, the use of the law itself for one sort of nefarious ends. I like that term. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm sure that if uh, we asked Putin or one of his advisors, they'd come up with a perfectly superficially plausible legal ex- explanation as to what they are doing in Ukraine and how that is all compliant with international law. But you know, no one would probably buy it. But yeah. they, they are very good at deploying the rhetoric of the law. Mm. I always finish these interviews with a would you rather question. Okay, would you rather? Okay, all right. Now, I feel that you can handle probably my most inappropriate slash offensive would you rather question I've ever asked. Okay. I noticed the arms have gone crossed. So I'm like, mm, okay, what's, what's coming now? <laughs> All right. Would you rather pass gas every time you meet somebody new mm-hmm. or burp every time you kiss someone? Probably pass gas. And why is that? I think intimacy would be very difficult if you sort of burp every time you kiss someone. Whereas, you know, if you pass gas, you can probably sort of try to sort of explain that away with some, you know, IBS or gastrointestinal problem. Uh, you know, it, it, I think it's sort of kind of easier to explain away in the situation. Yeah, but then you'd get the uh, reputation as being farty Ryan. Yeah, well, what can you do? Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. <laughs> If you want to learn more from Ryan, he teaches international law, the law of armed conflict and human rights law at the University of Queensland Master of Laws program. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on The Briefcase. It's time to close her up. See you next time. I'm Sarah Crowell and this is The Briefcase. Briefcase.